Pick the jukebox, it's so much fun. Kyle and Louie are number one. Kick the jukebox, kicking a rhyme. Talking about music all the time. Oh, yeah! Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Kick the Jukebox. I'm Louie Perlman. And I'm Kyle Gordon. <laughs> Kyle, how, how you doing there, my friend? What's going on? I'm doing all right. I'm sitting here in bed all tucked in and cozy, so uh, I'm ready to go. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're feeling a little under the weather? A little under the weather, but I'm pretty sure it's not COVID, which is an odd feeling to be sick during this time and not... I forgot that other, you were, uh, there were other ways to get sick. Yes. Yeah, there's still other stuff floating around out there. Who knew? Who knew? Hey, you know, the world is still spinning even during the apocalypse, you know? Fingers crossed. Yeah, seriously. Fingers crossed. Absolutely. <laughs> well, this is Kick the Jukebox. This is your favorite musicology podcast where we deep dive into an album of the week. This week we are doing In the Wee Small Hours by Frank Sinatra from 1955, a uh, sort of dive foray into the world of, the, uh, of, the, of this crooner, of the, of the great American songbook singer. From the yes. 50s. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, I know. I think we've done two kind of, I mean, I wouldn't call, I, I'd say it has elements of jazz. So I think next week we have to do like, you know, Master of Puppets or something. Yeah. Agreed <laughs> to like offset. Yeah. 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 <laughs> let's do like, uh, let's do a month of Motorhead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this podcast is also a continuing exploration of our taste in music, and of our friendship. You can, you know, find us on all social media and rate and review us on the podcatcher of your choice. So you've been pretty laid out this week, it sounds like. Just the past few days, yeah. um, this was my first week of uh, not being employed. Yes, so, so this um, was maybe a good time for your body to get sick. Yeah, maybe there's maybe that's related too. But uh, yeah. you know, I've just been hanging out all week, which is kind of. I mean, I've been having interviews and stuff. Uh, sure. By the way, I I just have to mention it. My dad just texted me. Just listen to Phil Collins' Susidio. Felt like dancing, Patrick. Uh, felt like dancing like Patrick Bateman. Sands the axe. Oh, I'm so glad Sands the Axe. <laughs> that was out of the blue. This is not related to any uh, conversation we were having. I got a text from my mom yesterday where she was really excited to tell me that Robert England went to Oakland U for one year. <laughs> That's amazing. It was um, it was wonderful. So we're both getting pretty good texts from our from our parents right now. For sure. And related to horror movies, I what I've been up to this week before I got sick, my girlfriend was here pretty much all week neither of us had really ever watched a lot of horror movies so well, we've been like that's your loss kyle <laughs> well but now we're like binging all the classics that we've seen for the first time so so what um, are your faves so far friday the 13th i think is my favorite that we've seen so far <laughs> that movie's such a trash pile <laughs> i know i love it yeah yeah <laughs> and then uh evil dead yeah and then have you watched evil dead 2 yet or just evil no dead? i know yeah it's just evil far dead. it's far superior evil dead yeah, 2 but like yeah. i like that it's like a student film kind of thing definitely yeah yeah we watched um poltergeist which i was like meh oh i love poltergeist really uh, uh, love it love it it's my favorite remake of the wizard of oz ever 
<laughs> and then most recently we watched Hellraiser, ah, which with, I with love. Our pal and, Pinhead, yes. Yes, our pal Pinhead. Yes. <laughs> I loved Canning despised it <laughs> it's, it's, it is a divisive movie it's very weirdly paced uh, very, oh yeah. yeah i mean the movie itself is like bizarre but yeah, i love very weird i love goo and slime and like that yes. movie's all goo and slime yeah clive barker is very gooey and slimy yeah yeah but you haven't watched nightmare on elm street yet no that's oh, definitely on our list that's nightmare my on elm street? it's my favorite all right yeah, I love Nightmare on Elm Street. Nightmare on Elm Street is just an uh, incredible film all around. That'll be good. Oh, yeah. also I watched, well, so on Night Flight, thank you to Louie for uh, hooking me up with that password. That's, yeah. what, that, that's what friends are for. That's right, yeah. Um, I yeah. watched this super, like, it's not even a horror movie. It's just a super campy. Uh, they have all these, like, those uh, B-horrors, and I watched. I mean, how could you see this title and cover and not want to watch it? microwave massacre oh nice what's the plot of that movie <laughs> um pretty much that um oh the guy who's the voice of frosty the snowman hates his wife's cooking so he kills her <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great yeah i watched a, a movie on night flight a few months ago called giant spider invasion where, Ooh, that was good well the giant spider was made out of a Volkswagen that they used the back taillights for the eyes and they built on top of it. <laughs> so it's a Volkswagen driving backwards with the legs going everywhere and that's the spider. That's amazing. Yeah, and the star of it is the skipper from Gilligan's Island. Incredible. So Incredible. a pretty good you film overall. Yeah. Masterpiece. Yeah. <laughs> well, I love that you're getting into that because, you know, horror movies are near and dear to my heart and were yeah. a big part of my life growing up. So, well, now we can enjoy horror movies together because I yeah. was always hesitant. It's been a big, it's something that's really divided us. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. That's great. What have you been listening to? <laughs> <laughs> In addition to the movies, so this week, I have to give a shout out to my friend Maggie. Mm -hmm. who is the nanny for a very for a decently famous british actress uh -huh. and she is currently in england while that actress directs a movie so she's cool. staying while she's there yeah she's like kind of near bath england so she's kind mm -hmm. of in the english countryside and she is staying in this gigantic super cliche British estate. It's exactly what you think of, you know, this giant, you know, lawn. It's like um Downton um, Abbey. Downton Abbey. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's just like that. So she's staying on the estate of the Duke of Beaufort. Great. And the Duke of Beaufort is, it turns out, he's about 60 years old uh -huh. and he has a band. Oh, great. The band is called The Listening Device. Oh, cool. And you can find it on Spotify. Okay. And there's a song from his most recent release from 2017 called Pornography. Uh-huh. And the lyrics, it comes in right at the beginning of the song. First of all, he's like kind of doing a like CVS brand Tom Waits vo vocal thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> the like arrangement is like just like crappy, like late 80s British alt rock, I guess mm -hmm. you could say. Mm -hmm. And the lyrics, the song starts... One thing that I am is heterosexual. Oh, fabulous. I'll never let I'll never let anyone take me from behind. Oh, well, this is already <laughs> upsetting to me. That we're talking about this on this podcast. <laughs> it's it's insane. It's it is 
I can, and this guy, look him up. He's the Duke of Beaufort. He's he's a British royalty. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, to go goes without saying, it's a horrendous song in every way. It's uh, the weird like anxieties of a like you know sixty something sheltered British royal filtered through his rock band. Yeah, and this is what he's the most worried about is a little bit yeah. of a little bit of butt play. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> insane. And this came out. Three years ago. Yeah, and no one said to him, hey, hey, buddy. Well, <laughs> this I isn't think a it, great, this maybe isn't a great look for you right now, you know, in well, 2017. It has, it has uh, like a thousand something listens on Spotify. So, and this is like a famous person. Like he's not, you know, he is, he has a Wikipedia. He's like a major royal. How much is his band a section in his like Wikipedia page? Zero. Oh, well, that's clearly a shame because <laughs> yeah, we, I mean, clearly we, it's the most important. We got to we got to we got to spread the word about the Duke of Beaufort's band. Have him account for his lyrics. Yeah. Every once in a while, we find stuff that we really, really dislike, you know, <laughs> which we don't talk about a lot on the show, you know, but this sounds pretty awful and needs to be heard to be believed. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I was going to bring up actually something I was listening to this week that was like 100% dreadful. And awesome. then I was like, no, I'm not going to talk about it. But I, <laughs> I but have now a bad habit of doing that. I have a bad habit of doing that. <laughs> well, I feel like what you are really great at is sort of weeding through what what might be considered outsider music, but is actually like non-outsider music. It's just like, it's not outsider music because outsider music's fucking awesome. It's yeah. like music. Right, 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 right. It's, it's just, it's like the music of the privileged that right. they don't put any effort actually into. Like, yeah, I feel like I, that's a subgenre for you. You know, yeah, I had the James Dolan song yep. that that's definitely falls into this category. The Duke of Beaufort. Yeah. I um did some research this week into the incredibly creepy Kelly family. Do you know about them? Is that the, like, I'm not going to pee my pants? Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't really know I, anything I about just this. See them, just saw the, I just think I really heard about them. I don't know anything about them. I saw that I'm not going to pee my pants thing this it's, week, Yeah, it's, it's I'm not going to pee my bed no more. Is the, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, so that's a song that's sort of been making the internet rounds, apparently since, like, 2012, 2013. And I mm -hmm. feel like I've seen it around and not really paid no mind. But it's like a very creepy little boy. He's like yes. eight or nine with like long hair. Right. With his whole Hanson family behind hair. him. Yeah, Hanson. But like Hanson, it's like cute. And his hair, like oh, yeah, it looks yeah. like there's like roaches in it. Like there's something <laughs> about it that there's like a big difference, I feel, you know. Sure. That makes him very disconcerting. And his whole family's behind him, including his dad. And this kid's singing like, incredibly passionately i'm not gonna pee pee yeah. my bed no more like over and over again like it's like uh or it's ain't gonna pee pee ain't gonna pee pee and it's like 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 bluesy it's very yeah. weird and then his family is like 12 people which right. in itself is creepy so yeah. i was like well i need to know what's going on here this is like some sort of cult yeah and yeah you know it's some creepy dad who's from the states who moved to europe and then had a bunch of kids with his nanny and you know and they live sort of this transient lifestyle so like nothing that's like i'm gonna heap tons of judgment on because i couldn't find like a lot of dirt on them but huh. what i am gonna say from a musical standpoint is i put on their most popular album which is from the late 80s and they have sold like 
tons of records in Europe and in Asia. Wow, They're really? very popular. Yes, what are they there? sold out arenas there. What do you mean, what are they there? What do you mean? Like, like what are they to people in Europe? Are they like a f- kids band? Are they like just like a genuine pop band? The, a bunch of the kids in the band sang different songs. So there's one of them who's like a heartthrob who's once again creepy and then a woman like a young woman singer so like they're very diverse and they're irish so they sing a lot of like kind of traditional irish ballad stuff as well and like some of it's sort of quasi-religious like catholic catholic-y but i i have a pretty good threshold for lots of different types of stuff and i try to be open-minded especially (laughs) about music that's considered trash yeah some of my favorite stuff and this was really unlistenable (laughs) like i think i think they kept repeating a line i'm trying to remember what it was in the first song from this album where they kept saying like trash heap over and over again and i think they kept like rhyming it with leap it was something like that but they did it like over and over again like this was a great lyric like it wasn't just like one lyric in the song and like that was enough that i was like i can't listen to this like this is really bothering me so i can't actually recommend the kelly family but they're really they're very strange oddity they're mm. they're really kind of one of the weirder things I've ever come across. Uh, I mean, my... you're tempting me. I know you're not recommending it, but well, yeah. everything everything you're saying is I, I got at, le- at the very least listen to that. I ain't gonna pee my bed no more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that song isn't even representative of I think a lot of their other stuff. <laughs> yeah, a lot of yeah, stuff yeah. that I heard was like weird kind of European pop, badly written in English, bad. <laughs> Yeah, I know they did some Eurovision stuff, you know, good for them. Like They were on Eurovision? Yeah, I think that they wow. did like a Eurovision song. Yeah, it's very very weird. I don't know. I would need to look into it more. Um if like if it was Ireland, it might have been Spain because they were living in Spain for a period of time. It's very weird. They had like I think a residency and I think it was specifically in Spain that they sold out 5 days at this one concert hall and like no other group had literally ever done that. It's very weird. Wow. <laughs> and, and you know, and this isn't me trying to belittle like the tastes of Europeans either. Like, not at all. Like, it's just something that culturally I really don't, I'm not connecting with, you know? That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> cults, cults, scary cult people. Yeah. Yeah. The culture always scarier when they go mainstream. Yes, that's true, actually. You know, <laughs> like Christianity, man. Fuck. Fuck. Fuck <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> We really said it. We said it on this podcast. Can you believe it? <laughs> yeah, I know. We really went there this week. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I was going to recommend, I'll just, you know, drop her name, Margot Gurian, who's this cool, like, California singer-songwriter from the 60s, who friend of the podcast, Jacob Reedy, turned me on to this week. And yeah. he's super cool. Yeah. I, uh, I don't think I've ever really listened. That name sounds familiar, so... I yeah, yeah, she's kind of like in, in that whole world of like semi-successful L.A. songwriters, you know, kind of like another Emmett Rhodes. Uh, yeah. And uh, Jacob sent her to me this week and was like, I think you'll really like this, and I do. And she sings a great song that's a kind of a parody of a dance craze song called The California Shake that's very creepy, that's about hmm. earthquakes. And it's pretty cool, yeah. So, hmm. you know, just going to say that's some actual good music to listen to that's very cool and very fun. But let's get into In the Wee Small Hours. 
yeah, yeah. by Frank Sinatra. Let's do it. Let's let's give it a big old chat. So sure. Sinatra is not one of my guys. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering for you, because you know, this is one of your choices. Was this someone that you have, have you always enjoyed listening to Sinatra or is this sort of a newer thing? Where did this come from that you want to cover this, this album? No. Yeah. I would say Sinatra wasn't one of my guys, but I mean, I think like a lot of people, I have some nostalgia because my grandpa loves Sinatra. So I have a lot of, I mean, I grew up with Sinatra in that way and Mm -hmm. he would listen to a lot of Sinatra in the car when I drive with him so but I didn't know Sinatra beyond like the big hits and kind of the caricature and you know New York New York or something like that sure so but I mean I wasn't opposed I I think I usually don't love like crooner stuff or like you know great American songbook stuff either I think Mm -hmm. usually can be a bit boring but I discovered this album a few years ago I just think it's incredible and it's amazing in that it is so dense and atmospheric and the mood is so clear and consistent throughout. It's like a little movie almost. When when you think of like the cool, sad, somber, like cliche 50s guy, like I think this is the, like, you know, everyone has an image of Sinatra in their head. I think this is the best, coolest version of him. You know, there are a lot of different versions of them. This is the best one. Yeah, it's interesting because this album was very successful when it came out and sort of was representative of a resurgence in popularity for him. But this isn't like the main image that we have in our heads of him kind of in the popular culture now. You know, this is really, this is, yeah, as you said, like this is like a really somber Sinatra. And and a very emotional Sinatra as well. Mm-hmm. Sinatra, I think we kind of look at him as being this kind of machismo tough guy. Yeah. He's someone to look up to for like those attributes, which is like yeah. so unmodern. And right. there's, you know, there can certainly be and a you, lot of problems with that, you know, like. And yeah. it's almost like a parody of itself. You think of sleazy, like orange like smoking guy in vegas like hey yeah like you know that like uh like hey sweetheart like that whole thing like you know it's like it's it's a parody of itself yeah and later sinatra definitely i think it it's easy to sort of lapse into watching it as self-parody like later sinatra clips and and it's a little hard like kind of doughy soft please everybody sinatra yeah, is, like yeah, it's like the the classic like Vegas, Miami Beach, yeah, um, kind of like sleaze, stuff. Yeah, yeah, like sleazy kind of shit. Yeah, <laughs> sleazy kind of shit. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, like, but it's easy to forget that at this time he was an artist who did have actually quite a lot to prove. This it wasn't a given that he was going to have the longevity that he ended up having. Right. In his career in 1955, when this album came out. And yep. it meant that in on this album, he took a lot of really interesting artistic risks, which is why I, I think that it's worth talking about on, on this show specifically. Absolutely. In a lot of ways. And I think he didn't take the same kind of risks and never had the same confidence. He didn't have it. He never had it quite before. And he didn't have it. He never had it really after because, you know, just to maybe give a bit of a background, like Sinatra, we, people forget, you know, in the early 40s up till like 
right post-war, Sinatra was like the first like teen heartthrob, you know, girls screaming, oh my God, Sinatra's here, like kind of Beatlemania type thing. Yeah. So he was like a teen heartthrob. Yeah, for the Bobby Soxers. The Bobby, exactly. Who we yeah. forget about because yeah. they are mostly now no longer with us. It was such <laughs> yeah. a long ago teen craze, yeah. Right, and like, uh, also I think we just tend to forget about I mean, I am definitely guilty of it, like being unaware of and forget about teen culture and youth culture prior to like Elvis. You know? For sure, yeah. It's And it's because it's hard to pin down too, because, you know. Yeah, yeah. I'd actually love to address that just for like a second, because it's totally true that before music was mass marketed to teenagers, which really came with the advent of rock and roll and then mm. was streamlined really with the advent of the Beatles, for sure as being mass produced for teenagers. But these sorts of ideas as to marketing towards what young women liked has mm -hmm. existed really since the dawn of film. Heartthrob mm -hmm. theory, teen idol theory, really starts with Rudolph Valentino in the, in the 20s as mm -hmm. a film actor. Mm -hmm. And that was the first instance of w young women watching his movies and fainting in, you know, in the aisles mm -hmm. of his movies. And there's been a lot of conjecture that one of the things that made him so appealing for young women was the fact that he was really handsome but in like an almost like androgynous feminine way mm. which made him like not very threatening and yeah. that's why like a lot of these younger singers did so well with young women is because they themselves sort of had this boyish charm to them and like yeah. Sinatra is definitely fits into that category when like he was Sinatra. a younger yeah. singer yeah in the 30s and in the 40s Yep. And in the late 30s, my grandmother skipped school to go see Sinatra play at the Paramount in Times Square. Wow. So that's my uh, that's my Sinatra story. Yeah, <laughs> that's she, really cool. She must have been 15 or so. Yeah. And she 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 skipped out and took the subway, you know, from the Upper East Side to Midtown Manhattan and went to go see Sinatra. And I think he was playing in the middle of the day or something that's why yeah, she right. skipped school yeah <laughs> but that's that's sort of an old family story you know so she certainly had a thing for him you know and I trust her judgment when it comes to men my grandmother <laughs> she certainly <laughs> she certainly had enough of them so yeah so it's, <laughs> it's like uh, so it's it's interesting but by the time that this album came out he was growing older and right. that kind of audience wasn't his audience anymore. And I think it was quite a challenge for him that he didn't have the young women being as very excited about him anymore. Totally. And I think he navigated that really well. So he had his teen idol phase. Then he had the washed up teen idol phase. Yeah, in where the he late got 40s. dropped by his record label. Yeah. yeah. And, he and, wasn't... and his show got canceled. He had a TV show that got canceled as well. He, yep. Like he was dead. He was totally washed up. Mm -hmm. He was, by his own admission, like completely alcoholic, like, mm -hmm. you know, just miserable drinking himself into a stupor. And then miraculously got the movie From Here to Eternity. And then he got an Academy Award, end of 1953, mm -hmm. and it kind of revitalized his career. So he was not only really grateful for this new lease on life, he just had a lot more confidence in himself because he's kind of been through the ringer and come through it. So I think on this album, and he had had two successful albums right before this, Songs for Young Lovers and Swing Easy, yeah. um, which did really well as well. But on this album, 
it was a combination of he was really confident artistically. He's like become an adult. He's got, you know, his 10,000 hours for sure. sure. And uh, he, and then he also, you know, as everyone will mention about this album, he had, you know, started up a very public romance with the actress Ava Gardner. And that was kind of falling apart during this time. So mm-hmm. um, this, this album, if we haven't described it already is, known for being it's called often a con- like the first concept album in that every song on the album is related to this theme of loneliness and you know it's kind of a break it's like the first great like breakup album yeah yeah and uh, he was married to Ava Gardner yeah uh, during this during the recording of this but the relationship had already pretty much fallen apart yeah and had fallen prey to they were both having affairs and all that kind of stuff yeah <laughs> such as such as life so i do just want to say about sinatra i think that you talking about listening to him with your grandfather is like really telling cuz i was talking about this with with my some of my friends yesterday i think that there's like sinatra families and there's non sinatra families yeah. and it's interesting because most sinatra families Really, it's such like an Italian thing. It's such a this part of the world thing as well, because he has mm-hmm. so he has so many ties to Jersey where he was born, and also a lot of ties to, you know, there's Frank Sinatra High School of the Performing Arts in Queens. Like mm-hmm. he's definitely connected to this part of the world, and I think yeah. that there were families that were primarily really Italian Catholic families who, uh, you know, he was such a staple and such a mainstay for multiple generations of kids growing up. So it's interesting that, uh, you know, your grandfather, who I'm assuming was a nice Jewish man, gravitated towards him. But of course, that could be a generational thing, too. But you came from a Sinatra family. I didn't really come from a Sinatra family, you know? that Yeah, yeah. that's really interesting. I, yeah, so yeah, my grandfather was definitely big old Jew. In, <laughs> he grew up in Bushwick. Um, which, you know, the classic thing of, he's like, the Jews lived over here, the Italians lived over here, the Irish lived over here. Yeah. But I mean, what's interesting about, this is my dad's side of the family. I think they were much more like assimilationist Jews than my mom's side of the family, which were like, you know, kind of stereotypical Long Island Jews. Sure. You know, they were, they were not like assimilationist in terms of their taste and aesthetic. Mm -hmm. And I think that may have been a part of it, just, you know, kind of a, an obsession with pop culture, really. And mm-hmm. I think, like, loving Sinatra is kind of, and especially being from New York, is definitely part of that. Oh, yeah. It's definitely a real hallmark of a New Yorker to love him. Yeah. On a personal note, I had a lovely interaction. Of course, I have a weird personal story. At that same computer lab where I worked, where I met Glenn Fry that one time from the Eagles, I met Frank Sinatra III, who had a child enrolled in the program. And I figured out who he was sort of as we were talking, mainly because I knew that it was a Sinatra who was like doing stuff in this computer lab, this like young girl. She was like maybe in like second or third grade, very nice little girl. And then her Mm. dad came in. And her dad was like, hey, I'm Frank. And I was like, oh, nice to meet you. And he was like hanging out with his daughter while she was doing stuff. And he, A, very nice guy, nothing disparaging to say about this lovely guy, really wanted to just hang out and talk with like a fun, young, artsy guy like me. You could tell he was a Sinatra specifically through his eyes. Like I looked at him and I, in his eye structure, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> like, <laughs> holy shit. It's, this is definitely Sinatra. And we had a really nice chat about how we were both mutual fans of 
the band, the band, how much we both loved the band. And then we like hung out and listened to the band together for like the whole time his daughter was there. Wow, really? Yeah. So kind of weird. I know that that's girl's like background and stuff from like me having a conversation with her previous. But then I looked them up on online and Frank Sinatra the third is like quite private. Like he doesn't have any public facing persona of any Mm -hmm. sort, but I'm pretty sure he's Frank Sinatra Jr.'s son. So anyway, cool, right? (laughs) Very cool. Very interesting. So why don't we, before we get into the background of like this being recorded, I think we should give everybody a baby, just a bit of a flavor of how this album sounds and feels. So let's Mm. listen to the title track in the wee small hours of the morning. In the wee small hours of the morning While the whole wide world is fast asleep You lie awake and think about the girl And never ever think of cows This song is, it's interesting because it's lush, which is a word that I use quite a lot on this podcast, but I do think it applies. And a lot of the songs on this were composed for smaller ensembles and Mm -hmm. were recorded at KLTJ Studios in Hollywood in one of the smaller studios at KLTJ. So not for like a big, you know, orchestral ensemble, but for a smaller group of musicians to be playing together. And definitely you know we have to give props to nelson riddle who Mm -hmm. is the arranger for this record yeah who at the time was a big like popular uh great american songbook arranger who was exclusive with Capitol records at the time Mm -hmm. um which is who released this album who sinatra was signed with as well uh and just a little side note about nelson riddle just because, you know, doing my research about him, I just think this is interesting. Mm-hmm. One of the places where he learned orchestration, which ended up being incredibly important for his career and for, like, the shape of American popular music, was he was a merchant marine in the army. Mm-hmm. And he studied under a teacher who, through the army, he learned orchestration was one of the places, not entirely, but yeah. just another, like, sort of public works program where you can learn how to be an artist. So Nelson Riddle's really important to shout out here. And then also um, their pianist, Bill Miller, worked with Sinatra on all of his vocal choices before they went into the studio. Mm -hmm. So Sinatra sort of came prepared with some plans as to how he wanted to sing these songs as well. I think, yeah, Sinatra was definitely very enjoyed collaboration. You know, he worked very closely with Nelson Riddle and um, members of his band. But, you know, at this point, he did have such confidence that really every element of this album, and we'll get into a little bit later the release of the album too but you know the songs that were picked the he had obviously an influence and an input into the arrangements the the idea of this like concept album even to the album art you know he had a very strong influence and you know dictated very specifically what he was wanted and what he was looking for 
yeah. um, let alone the vocal technique and the mics used, which he actually was kind of an expert in. People don't, you know, remember that he actually was very, very knowledgeable about like microphone technology and microphone technique. That's really interesting. Yeah. And then on the flip side of that, he takes a little more liberty with Riddle's arrangements in terms of what he's doing vocally with them than he's done mm-hmm. in the past which yep. shows another form of confidence for sure. Yep. Yep. And there's definitely parts of this album that there's like almost like a rough form of improvisation on it, but it only makes it yeah. feel more human and more endearing. You know, because this is like a really vulnerable side for him. All yes. of these songs are sort of supposed to be about the death of a relationship. Like we already called yep. it a breakup album. And he framed his choices for the songs around this title track. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and he really wanted to connote this image of all these songs coming from those restless hours, you know, in the morning when you can't get back to sleep because you're longing after someone or you're sad about somebody or anxious about the fact that maybe you haven't been as successful in your relationships as you would have liked to have been. Yeah, I can't wait. The next time I'm single, I can't wait to listen to this album. Yeah, w- listen to this at like three o'clock in the morning and just like yeah. be miserable and yeah, wallow which, in it. Which is what I think this album was was recorded to be listened to yeah you know and, like, and it's so and it, and it really works it works every time i mean listen to this at even if you're not miserable like this is like a perfect like nighttime album like you know make yourself a cocktail and like you know lay down on the couch put an ice pack on your head and just <laughs> weep. yeah definitely if you want to let out some feelings you know jokingly but like this is like it's a very emo album you know yeah right yeah it really really is yeah for sure and he was sort of lauded for that actually because he expresses a lot of vulnerability in this album and he allows himself to feel sadness and to feel weakness on this record and men at the time especially artistic portrayals of men or like mass culture portrayals of men, they weren't expected to behave that way at all. So this sort of was a new form of masculinity, which is cool coming from Sinatra. Yeah. And I think that kind of goes along with what he was prior to this was like when you had like, you know, torch ballads or, you know, somber songs, like which you definitely had obviously before this album, but like on, first of all, albums were really just meant to be a conglomeration of singles Mm -hmm. um, that hopefully, you know, if you were buying the album, you were, you know, it really was just meant to be a vehicle for hits. Yes. Um, This is the first album that was one cohesive piece and so kind of along with that stylistically what that meant during like Sinatra's career prior to this was there were a lot of like you know on this first song in the We Small Hours and a lot of other songs there's no rhythm section there's no beat Mm -hmm. there's no uh, drums let alone um, you know it's just the swelling and that uh, is kind of what allows him to like weave in and out in this like dreamlike way but that's very you know that's not a whole album of that kind of thing, which is essentially what this album is, is not like the recipe. It did not follow the formula at all. Mm-hmm. There's no, it's not swing easy anymore, you know? No, no, it definitely not. It is, it it, it, it really sticks to its guns too. Like yes. it is sonically pretty much the same the entire time all the way through. And it's a 54 minute long album i think he was pretty adamant that it didn't have that any sort of break in tone 
that yeah. it was supposed to just be this mood piece that you have to follow all the way through. Yeah. Yeah. And and it was supposed to be, you know, speaking about the way it was released, because it's it is really interesting. It's an interesting point in music time in the way music was released in history. It was supposed to be his first 12 inch, which makes a lot of sense for an almost hour long record. But first it was released as you could get it either as two 10 inches mm-hmm. or as a cluster of 45s. <laughs> yeah. Which is cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the that's the thing is that kind of Sinatra from the beginning saw this as like a very serious, cohesive work of art. Yeah. But like prior to this, pop music was really only ever released on 10 inches. The only music that got released on 12 inches was classical music, mm-hmm. you know, because that was serious music. And, you know, you had to listen to it on a hi-fi system or whatever. Like the kids, you can give them the junk like they'll yeah. listen to it 45s on their little like dinky little mickey mouse record player whatever yeah. they got this was the first pop album to be re- serious pop album to be released as a 12 inch record really you could say in a lot of ways that he kind of invented the pop album in, in its modern conception you know with this album yes yeah it is it's it's hugely formative in terms of the history of 20th century music so mm-hmm. hats off to you frank <laughs> Yeah. 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 <laughs> so this song in particular is interesting because it was written by uh, David Mann and with lyrics by Bob Hilliard. And the way that they ended up getting it in Sinatra's hands is David Mann knew Sinatra and Riddle and they bumped into each other in New York. And I think David Mann just like played it for him kind of off the cuff. And Sinatra liked it enough that he pretty much on the spot knew that it would be the centerpiece of this record. Mm-hmm. And and that's pretty cool. So it really spoke to him. And it's also the only song on this album that is not a great American songbook album or the song. Only new song, yeah. Yeah, it's the only new song. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. Let's talk about Mood Indigo, mm-hmm. which is the, I believe it's the second song on this record. Yep. All right, let's give it a spin. So what made you want to choose this one, Kyle? This, I always just love this song on the album. And then also I love the Four Freshmen, the vocal band from the 50s that were a big influence on Brian Wilson. And they have a 
version of this song, which was originally a Duke Ellington song, actually a pretty well-known Duke Ellington song. So it was it was a well-known song before Sinatra put it here, but I think it kind of shows sort of another side of this. Like the first song, you know, we kick it off in the wee small hours of the morning. It's very somber, no rhythm section, very atmospheric. And then this song, it kind of, I mean, it doesn't pick it up in terms of tempo, but it's it swings a little bit more. Yeah. And it has a bit more of a jazzy quality and you have the drums and the bass that has like a more, you know, consistent beat throughout it. So it's, it was just, I think a good sort of way to show the other, it shows that this is the other side of the album, but it's not, there's not that much distance in terms of tone or, you know, vibe between, you know, this song and really any other song. Like, this is the most swinging you're gonna get, the most jazzy you're gonna get. Yeah, and, and in terms of its sort of swing that it has, it actually, compared to Duke Ellington's original version, is just like a little quicker in pace. And right. it has like just a little bit more of a pep to it as well. So I'm sure yeah. that they were thinking about that when they were arranging this this one. For sure, and and the the original Duke Ellington one has it does have a bit of a it definitely has like a a, a beat like this, but it has a mi- bit more of like a slow New Orleansy sound, like traditional mm-hmm. jazz feel, and so to take that same kind of beat and then add these kind of atmospheric swirling strings on top of them and these like uh sh- you know kind of quick string decrescendos and all that kind of. It, it adds this really uh, interesting, cool quality to it. Yeah, awesome. Uh, I agree with that. And it also, is, I think, is just, it's worth noting, all these songs, like, three minutes long. Yeah. Yeah, which is interesting because it's such a, it's actually such a chunky record. Yeah, I mean, because I think, although it can be taken as a whole, and I think it's a testament to the record, each of these songs are standalone pop songs. Yeah, very much so. And very much in the vein of the time that they were written, where mm-hmm. they really did just keep keep stuff to the structure. And, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, lyrically, this one's kind of interesting too, right? It's sort of very impressionistic. It deals with sort of the feelings of sadness through like the expression of being blue. But like, this is so blue that you're, you know, your mood is indigo. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just more, yeah, definitely more, yeah, impressionistic is the right word. Whereas some of the other songs, you get very explicit, you know, when your lover has gone, can't we be friends? Mm -hmm. I'll never be the same. You know, it's pretty explicit. Ava, Um, can I come over and collect my hats, please? Yeah. That song. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Uh, I have a collection of fedoras in the garage. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I promise I'll take you to Spain. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) uh, Yeah, that... uh, it's not as explicit as that, but I think this is one, maybe one of the, it would have been one of the more well-known like great American songbook songs on the album. I think of the time more recognizable to people. Yeah. This is one that had already had a really good life before this record came out. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, and definitely there's a few different accounts of him singing some songs on this album and then like breaking down in tears after he's finishing certain takes and and you can tell that he's really emotionally invested in what he's doing here. Yeah, and and something he said, and it sounds cliche, 
what I'm I'm inclined to believe is that he would say he wouldn't sing a song unless he really had some sort of emotional connection to it, unless he could feel what the song was about and what it was for. And I think like the fact that he would create this album, that he would be inclined to create an album like this, this is something he just felt almost like he had to do, I think is a testament to that. And he was very particular also about the songs that he picked. So Mm -hmm. he actually had very particular taste. One, he hated rock music all the way (laughs) till his dying day. He despised it yeah he wasn't Um, one of those crooner guys that like did rock covers like it's not like you know ella fitzgerald has a bunch of really great beatles covers that are super fun like he never did that he wasn't he wasn't into it the closest he got was like i think you know doing a duet with the fifth dimension and that was him being like whoa like what are the kids up to yeah Um, seriously yeah you know he did cover sid vicious later on in his career yeah 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 no he didn't pull a pat boone and (laughs) have an album of metal covers yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I kind of wish he had. Uh, oh, that would have been amazing. Yeah. Um, I learned this week about people are starting to do deep fakes of uh, singers doing AI to replicate singers' voices for new songs. Oh, amazing. Someone should do a Sinatra metal album. Yes. He'd come yeah. back to life and murder that person, he'd shoot them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's how we. That's how. Yeah, we thought we're, would happen. <laughs> there's no judgment day. Like we're not bringing back the dead. We're bringing back one dead by just pissing off Sinatra. Yeah, I mean that's <laughs> it for the world. I would imagine his wrath. Sinatra's wrath yeah (laughs) but yeah but but to go back a little bit to his like the period at the late 40s early 50s when his career was dead the kinds of songs doing research for this album I, I kind of didn't really know enough about it but like this era I think was a great era for music not only birth of rock and roll but there was a lot of like cool jazz you have like this kind of um you know kind of sad cool guy aesthetic and frank sinatra which i think you know aged pretty well but like in the early 50s sinatra during his lowest period he got caught up in like the mitch miller like you know the music that was coming out was like how much how much is that doggy in the window yeah and all these novelty songs yeah and everything had to have like a spoken word dog barking like who who Mm-hmm. Looks like I'm back. <laughs> like, <Yep>. You know, <laughs> like my feet hurt. I can't go home. Like, you know. <laughs> uh, and Sinatra got wrapped up in that too, and he hated it. Yeah, he wasn't into old, it. Was yeah, he was just very particular about the music he played. Even though he, you know, he didn't write music. He was very, very particular about the songs that he sang and the music that he played. Yeah, well, you know, choosing what you're going to sing is definitely going to contribute to your persona in either a really concrete way or in a like super nebulous way. And the fact that he had some ideas around his, for lack of a better term, his like brand identity, there's, abs- there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. As, yeah. as a personality was. And, it, and again, it also ties into his marriage with Ava Gardner. I was reading... Apparently, like, the public didn't, quote-unquote, buy into it. They weren't into it. And that was so important back specifically, I would say, in the 50s, is to sell sort of this, like, this story around, like, the personal relationships of these famous people. Yes. And that actually him doing this album about how much this that relationship was making him upset in the public's eyes actually legitimized that relationship for them. So yeah. it kind of recontextualized 
the way they felt about him and probably a way that was ultimately pretty positive for his legacy. Yeah, for sure. And it, it, now you take it for granted that you like you'll have a, you know, Beyonce album or song that's explicitly about Jay-Z. But like yeah. back then, you know, you definitely had a very tabloidy, uh, intrusive Hollywood press. You can't think of any really, really big examples before this of like being so explicit in your art about your relationship. Yeah, absolutely. And that being said, let's listen to I Get Along Without You Very Well, which is a real song about a relationship. I get along without you very well, of course I do, except when soft rains fall and drip from leaves, then I recall the thrill of being sheltered in your arms of course i do so this one sounds like sort of the most lush arrangement i feel we've come across so far and it yeah. starts with that like big swelling string part Mm -hmm. you know, which is beautiful, which is really, really cool. It's great. This, this song was written by Hoagie Carmichael. He has the best name of any songwriter of all time. Yes, indeed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and the melody of it was based on a, a piece by Chopin, which is kind of interesting. Hmm. Yeah, and the lyrics were by a poet named Jane Brown. And apparently she wasn't really credited. And then it was like right at the advent of her death it was kind of revealed that she had written the lyrics to this song. Interesting. Yeah, which I think is, is interesting, yeah. And I, the reason why I picked this one out of all of them is I just feel like this is a great one in terms of the way that it deals with memory. Mm, and yes. Yeah, you know, like this one just like strongly contextualizes the way that we do our mental hopscotch to like get yes. over a, a breakup. Yeah. And it's also like, there's like a really nice tinge of, of irony here as well. Right. I mean, it's yeah. the classic thing of like, no, I'm fine. Like, I'm totally fine. Like, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I spent the last week like in my room weeping, but like, yeah, I'm like totally fine. Yeah, you know? I'm doing great. Everything's <laughs> yeah. great. Everything's awesome with me. You know, Which there's just I a think... few things I can't think about right now. And they yeah. include soft rain. <laughs> the sound of laughter, springtime. <laughs> like, you know, if I think about any of those broad subjects, I'll get really sad. But like, other than that, I'm totally, yeah, I'm yeah, rocking yeah. it. Yeah. No, no, no. In any other circumstance, I'll be totally fine. <laughs> yeah, and it's smart. And and I also do like the use of one of the, the main things he talks about. He sings about in the song as being off limits for him to be thinking about is spring, mm. only because like. Spring, of course, just like culturally, it's so much about renewal. So mm. this makes this song so much about sort of the death of a relationship or of an idea. And then right. also just like with what we're going through right now, I feel like we kind of lost our spring this year. 
Yeah. You know, and I found that just kind of, I found that kind of poignant listening to it, you know, for mm. this podcast is I was like, yeah, a lack of spring. There is something somewhat like psychologically damaging about that or depriving yourself of that. That's so funny because I remember, I mean, I was thinking of it in terms of summer, but uh, you sure. know, I, I, I remember at the beginning of quarantine, I was like, I swear to God, if I lose this summer, I, you know, like, I was like, I can't, I can't lose this summer. I can't lose a summer. Yeah, I know. I know. You know? Yeah. And I feel like we did lose a spring because we were all really figuring out how to deal with this. Yeah. And in terms of a summer, in certain ways we are, we have lost a summer, but in certain ways we've like recontextualized what it means to be spending a summer, you know, what we're doing, you know, at this point. So I'm glad you didn't lose your summer. I've made the most of it. Yeah. Yeah. I went to Fire Island yesterday. Really? Yeah, I did. Uh, How'd that go? Yeah. I went with my boyfriend and with a guest of the podcast, Mike Malone. Yeah. Nice. So yeah, it was great. You haven't lived until you've peed naked in the ocean. (laughs) 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 Needed to weasel that in. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. Very, very true. I think I've done that this summer too. So, hey. Oh, nice. I am. Yeah, Lachayim. We both peed naked <laughs> in the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> Peeing naked in the ocean, brothers, and music brothers. So Amen. Closing thoughts about, about this record. We've talked a lot about, I think, why it's still a good thing to be listening to within a modern context. But mm-hmm. if you wanted to boil it down to just like a few key thoughts, how would you boil it down? Why why should people still be listening to this in 2020? So I think you listen to this album and you close your eyes. You can, here's what you want to do. Stare at the album cover. Oh yeah. The album cover, which looks like the cover of like a cheap uh, pulp detective novel, which is totally intentional. Yeah. 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 Worth just saying. Yeah. Perfect. A painted cover. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's a painted cover of Sinatra smoking a cigarette, probably at like three in the morning in front of a desolate blue street. Yes. Yeah. So I think stare at this album cover for 15 to 20 seconds, put the album on, close your eyes and you will be able to like visualize in your head exactly a whole like landscape a whole aesthetic like you can see it all in your mind's eye and you know i was thinking like this album i always loved did you ever see uh fantasia 2000 sure the rhapsody in blue yeah um, it's it's very good i i actually watch that from time to time i'll look it up on I youtube and watch love it. it well also if they it's based on the cartooning of Al Hirschfeld, who's like my favorite. So just you, this needs that treatment. It could totally have that kind of, you know, at least in your head, Mm -hmm, (laughs) just mm -hmm. make, make, let's close your eyes, listen to this album and create your own Fantasia in your head. (laughs) (laughs) Well put Kyle. Well put. (laughs) Yeah. Truer words have never been spoken to recommend Mm -hmm. in the wee small hours, (laughs) you know, by Frank Sinatra and Ava, Frank still needs to get his fedoras out of your garage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, someone's got to tell her. Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been awesome. This has been super, super fun. Uh, a really great episode about stuff that we haven't really delved into yet on this podcast. So Yeah, and we promise, um, you know, next week uh, we're doing Slayer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> next week we're doing I'm obsessed. I got really into 
not really into, but I have a thing for this Canadian metal band called Triumph as of this week. Ooh, so nice. Oh yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> this has been Kick the Jukebox. Thanks to everybody who's uh, been continuing to listen. We've been loving to be doing this over the last few weeks. And you know, if you like this podcast, please recommend it to a friend. Uh, and yeah, you can find us on all social media. You can rate and review us on any podcatcher of your choice. I'm Louis Perlman. And I'm Kyle Gordon. We will see you around like a record. Kick the jukebox is so much fun. Kyle and Louie are number one. Kick the jukebox, kicking a rhyme. Talking about music all the time.